Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a warning for building the infrastructure around JADC2. You can build whatever architecture you want. You can design the best warfighting concept you can possibly come up with. And it falls apart once real users start experimenting with it. The real benefit of a security modernization strategy. Simplifying your security stack means you're not just dumping money on it and saying, okay, I'm going to spend all this money and resources to do this. It's actually freeing up resources to focus on your core business. And the Coast Guard goes on cyber offense. It's one thing to be able to play defense. You know, what our administration has, has said that, you know, we're not just going to sit back and, and wait for criminals or those that wish us harm uh, to impose you know, all of their negative outcomes on the United States. It's Wednesday, April 13th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Okta. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The fifth generation of a key military cyber training is under development. The Army Program Executive Office Simulation Training and Instrumentations working on a new version of the persistent cyber training environment. Version 4.0 of the PCTE came out earlier this year. The Homeland Security Department could team with the National Cybersecurity Preparedness Consortium on cyber readiness under a bill the Senate has passed. The consortium includes educational organizations at five higher ed institutions across the country. The legislation allows DHS and the consortium to collaborate on incident response, too. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. IT leaders from CISA and HHS headline the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference happening May 19th at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Joint All-Domain Command and Control Operation will get a new leader at the Defense Department. Lieutenant General Mary O'Brien will be the new Director for Command, Control, Communication, and Computer Cyber, and Chief Information Officer J-6. Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, U.S. Air Force, retired as former Director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at DOD and former leader of Project MAVEN. Jack, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It's great to talk to you again. What will Mary O'Brien be responsible for, General? O'Brien, and what's her role, what's the role of that person, whoever it is, in coordinating all of the pieces and all of the places that are responsible for a JADC2 across the department? Welcome, sir. Uh, thanks, Francis. Thanks for having me back on. I always enjoy these conversations. Uh, Mary is going to be walking into a very complicated situation, as you know, from other people who've had on talking about the complexities of putting together JADC2. It is so important to the department, but it's also about the most intricate thing that you can think of. And so she's walking in and there's this very important chicken and egg argument to, to be had here, right? So you, it, you had to come up with a joint warfighting concept about how, how we envision the Department of Defense fighting in the future. And that, that eventually came out of the joint staff J7. But you also wanted to start working on an architecture and networks for what that future world looks like. Uh, you have to be careful about the sequencing there. If you start building a network and architecture, you don't know how you're going to fight, you might be building the wrong architecture. Uh, so they tried to work this sequencing. And as Mary comes in, she's going to have to um, understand both that future warfighting concept, but also how to build that architecture. And, and as you and I talked last time, Francis, as we talked about the Jake, and, and I called it a natural evolution to go under the DOD CDAO, 
Well, to me, this is a natural evolution of JADC2 as Mary comes in to start moving beyond warfighting concepts and architecture diagrams and start actually putting things out into the field. This is going to be so important. And, and this is where you can build whatever architecture you want. You can design the best warfighting concept you can possibly come up with. And it falls apart once real users start experimenting with it, which is I say this over and over again. I can't think of a more important time to be doing lots of exercises, experiments in war games to really bring this out. We're going to have to be very flexible. Mary's going to understand this well. You have to be very flexible that what you thought you had initially is going to have to change. As you, as I prepared to talk to you, Jack, I thought this is a, a complex problem because it's horizontal and vertical. The way that you just described it, it's now three-dimensional in my head in the kind of the framework that I'm seeing in my head. This is 3D, right? There's a depth here in addition to the horizontal and vertical because you have um, you have the joint staff level and at the OSD level, and I think of those as kind of the same level, civilian and, and uniformed. And then you have the services and there's just there's just so much here. This gets deep and wide, doesn't it? It does. And I would add a D. I would add a fourth dimension of time, the time complexion of future warfighting and the speed at which you expect conflict to happen, which we always talk about this idea of algorithmic warfare. Uh, as you know, Project Maven was the algorithmic warfare cross-functional team. We can't forget that in this future world. And if you think peer conflict, United States and China, things will be unfolding so fast. There is a, there is a temporal dimension of this that really has to be taken into account. And to your other point, Francis, it's really an important one. How many, how many people are in involved here. You have everybody from research and engineering and OSD to the CIO, of course, with digital modernization. You can't you can't move forward without a digital modernized architecture network. You have CDAO, joint staff, you know, J6, J7, and of course the services as the you know, providers of the warfighting elements, and then the combatant commands. The combatant commands, we cannot forget, are the ultimate users of this. They have a very big say and should have a big say in how this is all going to work. What's the responsibility of each of those organizations to contribute to that effort that you said at the outset that General O'Brien will undertake? Well, I think General O'Brien is going to get a headache trying to figure out where all those lines <laughs> uh, begin and end, as I knew from my time in the Jake. You have to be very careful about who owns what part uh, of the overall sort of architecture. As I understand it, you know, JADC2 now is its own element within Joint Staff J6, recognizing the importance of this to, to the future warfight. But it's not only the Joint Staff J6. This is what makes this so complicated. The CIO and the Joint Staff J6 have to be in this just hand in glove together. They're so inextricably linked with digital modernization. But research and engineering and DARPA, who are coming up with sort of some really cutting edge ideas about mosaic warfare, how we'll fight in the future, they're right in the middle of this as well. And then how you acquire it. So you have acquisition and sustainment you have to take into account. And, and, and as you've had people on talking about, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, the services have got these three major programs. You have overmatch, you have convergence, and you have ABMS the Air Force. Very good programs, perhaps on their own, but they're not well stitched together. And what Mary's going to have to do is figure out how does she build an architecture that is good for all of the services, not just tailor-made to work for any one services. What's the responsibility potentially of each of those services to mold their piece to JADC2 instead of asking General O'Brien to mold JADC2 to their pieces? 
Yeah, that's a that's such a great, good question. So there has to be, and this is something Mary's going to be working from day one, is working with the services so that everybody is not surprised by here's the architecture and here's the environment. What the Joint Staff J6 is building has to be informed by the military services and their programs. And the military service and our programs have to know what that future architecture design is going to look like because that's what they need to build for. So the idea of all of that coming together is so important. But as, as I have said before on this program, but, but pretty much in every opportunity I say this, this brings in the importance of a centralized direction aspect and a common foundation. Let the services do a lot of what the services do very well, but don't do that absent a common foundation and centralized direction. I get the whole decentralized e execution part. It's critical to how this is going to go. In fact, to some of me, I say, let the services get out of the way there because the real innovation will happen at the, at the lowest tactical level and at the operational level. But what, what you have to do is have that common direction and that common foundation centralized direction, or else you're just going to have three different stovepipe systems that cannot talk to each other in combat, and that's a disaster waiting to happen. Just ask the Russians. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And and that was the concern for years because there were some of the services, I, I, and I don't mean to pick on the Navy, but uh, it struck me for a long time that they were a little bit hesitant to kind of merge overmatch into the uh, into this greater system. There was some hesitation about um, ABMS being it and, and being the, the framework to which the other services should come. Are we past that at least, do you think, General? I'd like to believe it, but we're never going to get fully past that because, it, it, look, I'll, I'll take the position of any service, not just my previous service, United States Air Force. They're going to be focused on their programs because there there is a legitimate concern that OSD doesn't know or joint staff doesn't know how they're going to fight it in the future. I accept that up to a certain point. But Mary Mary is joint to her core. She understands this very well as she goes into this position. And it has to you have to work with the services, but at some point you can't let them sort of control the destiny of the Department of Defense. You have to take into account what makes the Army's uh, part of convergence different than the Air Force's ABMS or different than the Navy's overmatch. That's a that's a, a indispensable uh, element of this future architecture. So you've got to have that conversation and get those differences uh, rung out between the Joint Staff OSD and the services. But you cannot let this to go go on forever with the services sort of doing their own thing. That just doesn't work well in, in the crucible of con of conflict and combat. All right. Final thought. And this is more philosophical, I think, than, than tactical or strategic, Jack. And that is, what would you like to see anyone, any stakeholder do anywhere in the organization, anywhere in the department to try to drive for the long term, the concept of jointness more to kind of embroider it more into the culture of the department, because that seems to be the yes, core so, of what the challenge is here. Yeah. And, I, and so here's a here's maybe a little bit of a different answer than you expected. Look at the disaster, the abysmal performance of Russian forces in Ukraine. They are not operating jointly. Um, I think China has a little bit of a wake up call, having not experienced uh, sort of real combat operations for a very long time. It is hard to get joint right. Uh, we are extremely good at it but it doesn't mean it will always be that way. There has to be a focus on continuing to fight, to plan, to think 
joint. Um, and, and so, and Mary comes into that joint staff J6 job, understanding that she has to bring the services into the conversation. But at some point, I mean, you really have to enforce this, uh, this jointness concept, because without it, you're just a bunch of different services doing what the services want to do. We have to think joint more than ever before. And I'll throw in one last word, combined. It has to be allies and partners as part of this conversation on JADC2, not just the United States Department of Defense. We will pick it up there next time because I would love to pursue uh, in our next conversation, Jack, what that looks like, not just within our own uh, partnerships in the United States military, but around the world. Thanks very much for your time today. It's great to talk to you as always. Thanks again, Francis. Same. You can read more about the future of JADC2 in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Thursday's show, data management, curation, and security in the oversight community. Gerald Karen, the chief information officer at the Office of the Inspector General at HHS, is on Thursday's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency will keep comments open through April 18th on its new Zero Trust Mobility paper. CISA says that paper will guide agencies as they develop and implement Zero Trust Mobility strategies. Sean Frazier is Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. Okta sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Sean, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. You wrote me recently about the concept of less talk, more action for cybersecurity modernization. This effort that CIS is undertaking seems to be going in that direction. What are you seeing across the landscape from policy organizations like CISA and how agencies are responding execution-wise? Welcome, Sean. Yeah, thank you, Francis. It's good to be here. Good to see you. Um, Yeah, I think that this is important guidance because if you think about the core pillars and the constructs of zero trust, one of the more important ones is the endpoint. And almost everything these days with regard to endpoint is mobility. Almost everything is mobile if you think about it from that perspective. So what this is doing is this is continuing to flesh out the guidance around zero trust and how agencies can take advantage of it across the core pillars. Obviously, the identity pillar is one that's near and dear to my heart and Okta's heart, usually where zero trust journeys start. But the endpoint pillar is equally important because that's basically you're defining the security construct for how a user will use a device to get access to that data. So the mobility piece has been particularly important over the last two years as people, individuals, and agencies as enterprises have been working almost completely remotely in some cases. What's the implication of that moving forward as agencies start to think about securing people who will be working potentially remotely at least part of the time forever? Yeah, and I think that's one of the core reasons why it's really taken off in the last couple of years. If you think about cloud adoption starting 20 years ago and kind of a slow drumbeat of moving to cloud, the mobile adoption, again, about 10 years ago, starting the slow drumbeat of moving to mobility from an endpoint perspective, that all got accelerated in the last two years because of work from home and telework, and we call it dynamic workforce um, that folks are kind of living through. So that's why it's super important now, because now as we're coming out of it, a lot of those folks aren't going to go back into the office anymore because they don't need to. So as long as you built the same constructs around security for access for user on a device accessing data serviced by an application, it doesn't matter where that user is, doesn't matter where that device is, doesn't matter where the data in the application is. Is there anything happening on the security landscape that a federal CIO, CISO, or other leader should be thinking about regarding specifically their remote workforce that maybe is not on the radar screen today, Sean? 
I think the biggest, there's two biggest things that people tend to miss with some of these things because it's, it's really kind of lost in the minutia of the, the guidance. One is user experience, making sure you're building the best user experience possible um, because your users are a little more savvy than they were 20 years ago or even 10 or even five years ago. So focus on user experience. I call it kind of the, the unwritten sixth, sixth pillar of zero trust. We've got our five pillars, user experience being the one that's kind of unwritten sixth pillar. So make sure you're focusing on that because that at the end of the day, if you can provide the best balance of security and usability, that's a win. What does that balance look like in 2022 and what might that balance look like in 25 and beyond? So I think our balance is really leveraging the platform authenticators from my perspective, leveraging things like biometric, making things frictionless. Again, taking our, our kind of marching orders from commercial technologies like Apple iPhone and, and, and Touch ID and Face ID and these kinds of things and building those into the constructs that you build from security perspective. Luckily, those things are kind of called out, not as broadly and as, as loudly as I would like, but when they, we talk about phishing resistant factors and we're talking about WebAuthn and FIDO2, which are specific technologies and future technologies around identity and access management, they leverage those really commercially viable technologies that users are used to using when they go to Starbucks or, or pay things through their bank. That's maybe an advantage, isn't it, for agencies? Because as you think about the user experience, you know, five years ago, I don't know that people had a lot of experience in public sector commercial environments like you just described, thinking about security things. And maybe the benefit is maybe they're not thinking about them as security elements today. But they're just happening as security elements, as you just described. And that becomes a benefit that agencies should incorporate or implement, I imagine, as they're thinking about that CX element, that user experience element of zero trust. Am I on the right track? Absolutely. Because one of the things that we've done over many, many years is we tend to kind of build these things from scratch out of whole cloth and do all these custom things. We can now ride on the coattails of very large scalable systems with very strong security models that we can just leverage in the enterprise. So we, we actually get the benefit of a lot of these things. And oh, by the way, we get good user experiences in the bargain. So users actually can get their job done quicker, regardless of where they are. What are you seeing organizations responding to trend-wise? I mean, we could talk about the cyber executive order from the White House probably until our, our heads explode. Um, we could talk about um, different documents that NIST has published, but what's really happening in your view in the trenches? What are you really seeing organizations doing every day with their hands and their brains to make a difference as to how their networks are secure? I think the two biggest thing is, again, accelerating of, of, of easy access of technology, so cloud adoption. You know, SaaS is a big one, right? Software as a service leveraging those te technologies to deliver, you know, very highly scalable, high, highly performant, great user experiences. We're seeing government agencies do, do that like never before, uh, which is fantastic. I think the other piece that users are focused on is, is again, kind of what I call the meat and potatoes of security, right? So use multi-factor authentication, use secure single sign-on. These kinds of technologies have been around for a little while, but we've been a little slow in the public sector to adopt those things. And now, again, because of the things we've lived through for the last 10 years, we've kind of been forced to do that. But I think people are taking it to the next level and really using this as an opportunity to modernize and to simplify. You pointed me to two different things that on my on my first process, I thought maybe they're kind of at odds with each other. And I wonder if you can help me sort them out a little bit, Sean. You, you wrote about the, the NIST standards and OMB memos and the executive order and all of that as contributing to helping agencies kind of get their cyber houses in order. That's one piece. The other piece that you made a note about is you wrote, there's no finish line or destination for cybersecurity implementation. 
having one's house in order seems like a destination to me. So to help me understand the intersection of those two concepts or maybe how one builds on the other or whatever. Yeah, the house analogy is a good one. I also like to use the analogy of, of um, you know, kind of working out, right, and in your, in your health. You know, you don't, you don't get to the point where 30 days from now you've worked out and you're done. And then at that point, it's like from that point forward, I don't have to work out anymore. So the reason I say that this is never done is because this is muscle memory you have to build. This is something that you build into the DNA of your architecture. You're always going to be fielding new applications. You're going to always have new things you're going to be focused on from a business perspective. You're going to have new users coming in, users leaving the organization. It's a constant environment of change. So you need security that can adapt to that. So it's not like you can just say, put a flag on the ground and say, in this day, we're going to be done with this. You're never done with it. Okay. And in the house analogy, then once I get the place straightened up, I'm still going to buy new stuff and I'm going to get rid of things I don't want anymore. And so there's that constant maintenance that's going on. Is yeah, exactly. I still have to mow the grass. I still have to, you know, change my light bulbs. I still have to do all these different things in the house, even though my house is in order. It's a much better shape than when I started, but I still have some work to do and it's ongoing work. Okay. What's the most important maintenance work then that you see organizations have to do given that context in the next, say, six months to a year, not just to comply with some document, but to really maintain security? The biggest things is to start with the kind of the the brass tacks of the identity and access management piece. So the secure single sign-on, the the governance around that. One of the biggest challenges agencies have are around what we call joiners, movers, and leavers. Right when when people come into the organization, they move around inside the organization, they leave the organization. We're not we don't do a really good job of cleaning that stuff up. So you got to have some governance, some basic things that you can do. Um, as people come to the organization and then layer that security on when you're working with it. So, so strong multi-factor authentication is important. Leveraging those biometrics, leveraging those platform authenticators. Those are things you can do pretty low hanging fruit stuff that will pay dividends. How does one go about that if they don't already have that in process? I mean, I imagine there are some organizations that are really, really successful and there are some organizations that are really at the beginning of that journey. Yeah, and part of it is an assessment. Part of it is kind of figuring out where you are. And one of the other challenges, too, is that a lot of the IT technology within organizations have grown organically. And that's kind of caused a little bit of friction where some organizations have 40 different identity systems. So the first thing they have to do is consolidate, you know, uh, you know, simplify their identity systems into at least a handful of systems that they can manage appropriately, and then layer on those protections on top of it. So part of this is in, in any journey is to plan out your map before you start the journey, right? So, so look at where you are, look at the, the, where you need to start. Identity is a natural place to start because that's kind of a known construct of users and inventories and figure out how do I consolidate my identities down to a, you know, a single sign-on solution that is totally secure that I can leverage across the organization, layer in multi-factor authentication, layer in those strong phishing resistant factors, and then move from there either specifically regarding those concepts that you just laid out or more broadly all of the things that we talked about today sean how does one measure success yeah so i think there are two measures of success i mean obviously the the i haven't been hacked therefore you know i'm not on the front page of the wall street journal therefore i've been successful that's certainly one metric another metric is you know how am i able to to continue to do my job and focus on my business because one of the other things here is that you know, simplifying your security stack means you're not just dumping money on it and saying, okay, I'm going to spend all this money and resources to do this. It's actually freeing up resources to focus on your core business. So is your core business being more successful? Can you leverage security to make your core business better and successful? Am I deploying applications in a timely fashion? Am I rotating applications in a timely fashion? You know, do I have the the ability to very quickly look across my organization and see where threats are coming in, where I'm blocking threats, when users are leaving the organization, I'm, I'm moving them out in a couple minutes, not in a couple weeks. 
if you can track those kinds of metrics, then you can kind of ba- gauge that and you use that to gauge success. Sean Frazier of Okta, it's great to have you on the program. Nice to see you again. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Francis. Always good to see you too. You can read more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for innovation at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. Army CIO Raj Iyer is one of the keynotes, and I'm hosting it tomorrow, April 14th, at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Coast Guard's cyber strategy has three lines of effort. Those lines include defending and operating the Coast Guard Enterprise Mission Platform, protecting the marine transport system, and operating in and through cyberspace. Rear Admiral Michael Ryan is commander of Coast Guard Cyber Command. Admiral, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I'll talk through each of those three lines of effort in a moment. But first, what's the broader threat landscape look like for the Coast Guard today in the cyber realm? Welcome, sir. Hey, thank you. And hey, that, that, that threat landscape is real. All of those things that you're hearing about in the news, you know, those are relevant issues that the Coast Guard needs to pay attention to, that our key partners in the maritime industry and, and port environments need to pay attention to. You know, but I think it's amplified today, you know, with the Russia invasion of Ukraine, the potential for retaliatory strikes back into our homeland, the domestic consequence. You know, those are things that we are on uh, point to really guard against now. You're seeing the federal government elevate the conversation, enhance the flow of information, you know, across the critical infrastructure sectors and really putting on notice, you know, the citizens of our United States that we need to be cautious. This is a time of uh, risk and potential consequence. And so we're trying to make sure that we're even more vigilant now than we are on a daily basis. And I think most can appreciate cyber threats and vulnerabilities. Those persist around the clock every single day of the year. And so you can never have a down day or afford to not pay attention. But the Coast Guard is moving in this space to make sure that people can appreciate uh, that elevated period of caution and concern, that we're assisting you know, all of those groups uh, that are within our mission portfolio and we want to make sure that you know we're going to be able to sustain our livelihood across this great nation you know with uh, preparedness and and response activities where necessary what does vigilance look like in the cyber realm in 2022 admiral you know it's really uh being conditioned so that you are reducing your risk as much as you can and you'll never be able to drive that to zero um, you know, even the most sophisticated defensive posture that our companies and our governments putting in place, you know, there are some wily and creative adversaries out there, you know, whether it's nation state supported or malicious cyber uh, groups or just somebody that uh, finds it cool to try to hack into your environment. You know, all of those risks are real and it doesn't take you know, a lot of infrastructure or background for them to leverage those exploitation potentials. And so we've got to make sure that, uh, you know, we are on our game, that we've made the right investments. We're getting the maximum uh, capability out of our, our defenses and our sensors as we can. So you're building the climate, you're building the culture, you're having conversations like this that just reinforce that this is everybody's business. You know, this is not something the government can just 
uh, put out there and protect both our citizens and our critical infrastructure or our private equities and interests. Um, this is a team sport and we need all of those components to be working together. And we're seeing great um, advantages and seeing some new developments. You know, I'm really, really impressed with the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency's leadership in this role. A new DHS element, just a couple years old now, but they're helping to galvanize those efforts. They're helping to ensure we're sharing the right information and that we're providing the right intelligence to those that need it and that uh, collectively we are building our defenses. And, and the Coast Guard is a strong contributor, particularly in the maritime transportation system uh, in that critical infrastructure sector to make sure that uh, we're meeting the needs of our nation. You know what I take away from that comment, Admiral, is that you didn't mention any gadgets, you didn't mention any architectures, you didn't mention anything like that. You talked about what your people need to be doing, and you talked about what you're what what you need to build culturally. Uh, you talked about risk management, which is uh, again not a thing; it's it's an idea, it's a concept. What has happened in the cyber community or the the cyber area of operation in the last like five years that you think has gotten us away from that? Because this has become a lot more of a conceptual conversation, it strikes me, not just with you, but with cyber practitioners all across the government in industry and so on. What a great question. And you use the word operations. And that is what what is different. This is no longer a digital divide issue. You know, this really is about uh, how you're operating, you know, the same mentality uh, that's you know, prominent in DOD that, you know, we're seeing to build these, these new paradigms across the federal civilian executive branch. And then really, you know, trying to make sure that our, our industries are recognizing that they've got to approach it in the same uh, focus that they do their primary business line. They can't afford to disregard or ignore this critical area. So, you know, you're dependent upon your people to do all the right things so they don't become a liability. You're trying to make sure you're making the right investments. And so you really are building that culture. You're building that approach for the Coast Guard and for cyberspace. You know, we are treating this as an operational domain, just like we do with all the physical domains. No different than putting a cutter to sea flying our aircraft or conducting, uh, you know, search and rescue activities from our shore-based forces. You know, I am a operational commander for our commandant and we're employing operational forces to be able to augment uh, the capabilities that we have, you know, spread throughout the global maritime commons. All right, uh, line of effort one is defending and operating the enterprise mission platform and your cyber strategy document says, that that is your portion of the Department of Defense Information Network, the DODEN. Are there peculiarities about the cyber posture, the cyber position in which you find yourself because you have a foot in DOD and you have a foot in DHS, Admiral? It's empowering for us. You know, I get to leverage all of the benefits and the investments of DOD. You know, we are a military service day in and day out. And so that's our brethren. You know, we stay connected to U.S. Cyber Command and across the joint force in cyberspace. We've got a great playbook by following their lead, following their example, and likewise, buying into their capabilities. And so I sleep pretty well at night knowing that I've got that power 
of the military approach uh, to cyberspace that helps our capabilities remain available in support of our operational objectives. You know, we can't uh, fly our aircraft or put our ships to sea without the right tools and capabilities. You know, that's technology that's been operationalized. I want all of that to continue to operate. And so when we talk about, you know, protecting the enterprise mission platform, you know, that's amorphous. That's, you gotta, you gotta protect everything. Defend your backyard day in and day out and do it with vigilance and focus so that I do not become a liability to General Nakasone's uh, environment, you know, as the head of U.S. Cyber Command. He's responsible for that entire fabric of uh, technology and capability for DOD. And, you know, the Coast Guard is intertwined in that arena. We've got to make sure that, uh, you know, we're playing the best defense that we can so that we can leverage our capabilities to our advantage. And I think folks like me, outsiders, Admiral, have a tendency to think about the enterprise mission platform, you know, the platform of any organization as the front end stuff. And it's not just that. I imagine you're talking about the back office, financial management systems and all that jazz uh, when it comes to the EMP. And that's that's all your area of operation, correct? Absolutely. That's our critical cyber terrain. You know, it's it's the sphere uh, that I draw around both those information technology systems, you know, all of the things that uh, we all enjoy on our computers, but it's also the operational technology. It's those integrated systems into our capital assets. You know, it's the uh, the sensors that we employ to know what's going on in the maritime transportation system. It's, it's really your full portfolio of capability and a weakness in any one of those areas makes you weak across the board because just like, you know, in the internet domain, everything's interconnected today. And so if an adversary can leverage an opening or a vector in one particular segment of your enterprise, chances are they then can move to other parts and that lateral movement will kill you. Uh, Line of effort two is protecting the marine transportation system. What's the scope of that, Admiral? And where are you interacting? What are your touch points there? And who are those touch points with? Yeah, you know, this is this is lifeblood work for the Coast Guard. You know, when we talk about the MTS, what the acronym Marine Transportation System, it's all of that commercial enterprise, you know, that sits in our 361 ports, that plies 25,000 miles of waterways, you know, leading to our shores, that really facilitates the movement of $5.4 trillion of economic activity each and every year. And you want to talk about consequence of disruption. You know, we already know that our supply chains are stressed. We can't afford to have, you know, a breakdown in those services and those commodity streams that, you know, our nation is banking upon. And so the Coast Guard is both a regulatory agency, but also as a stakeholder of goodwill, working with the maritime industry, you know, we're committed to making sure that our nation's economic engine can continue to hum unabated regardless of what our adversaries might look to impose upon us. And so we're working with those companies. You know, I'm using my cyber protection teams to be able to give my Coast Guard field commanders a better sense of how secure is the waterfront? How resilient will that maritime community be if they see a disruption or an attack, you know, within their fence lines? And so, you know, I'm putting Coast Guard operational forces into that fight both in a prevention mode, but also in a response and recovery activity where needed. 
you know, it's, it's full spectrum operations for us, but it's no different than the interaction that we have with those same stakeholder groups from a marine safety perspective, from protecting the environment, and, and really making sure that, uh, you know, our nation can get its economic engine in motion. Line of effort number three is operating in and through cyberspace. Now, I know strategies like this, sir, uh, the words are all chosen very carefully, but that phrase in particular strikes me as one that is there and written that way for a very particular reason. What's the reason behind, what's the message behind that concept of operating in and through cyberspace? Yeah, this is really a reflection that cyberspace is a little different. You know, it's different than operating in the, the global maritime commons. It's different than flying, you know, across our, our nation's uh, skies. Cyberspace is, uh, you know, it is there everywhere. And you no longer have constraints of time, speed, and distance, you know, both to project your objectives, but also where your adversaries can touch you. And so, you know, this is an area of aspiration for the Coast Guard. It is probably the most exciting opportunity on our horizon because it's an opportunity for us to amplify all the mission objectives and capabilities that we already have. There is a cyber nexus to every single, uh, both statutory mission as well as real world activity that the Coast Guard conducts. My challenge, you know, as driven by our commandant and our senior leadership is make that real and relevant so that we can supplement all of the hard capital investments that we're, we're bringing to bear in support of our nation. You know, we're in the throes of our biggest shipbuilding recapitalization since World War II in the Coast Guard. But I can further amplify the capabilities and the, the impacts of those national security cutters that we're commissioning by leveraging cyberspace. I've got to give those you know, uh, cutter captains more tools to work with. I need to have our sector commanders you know, that run regional operations around our nation's shores even more capability to leverage. So we've got to inject cyber principles into how they're doing business, giving them more tools, results, and better outcomes. So we're still growing into that arena, uh, but uh, that occupies a lot of my focus and really our strategic objectives. To that end of operating in and through cyberspace, some of those operations inevitably will be offensive, and their number of stories last fall um, August, September, about the Coast Guard undertaking uh, and th- working on offensive cyber operations. What's that mean exactly? And what have you learned in the eight months or so since you uh, started to at least talk about those things in public? Yeah, we've been afforded, uh, you know, the opportunity to build out a cyber mission team, a group of uh, really highly capable, specialized uh, members of our force you know, that can understand how can you leverage cyberspace to thwart your adversaries. You know, it's uh, it's one thing to be able to play defense, you know, but our administration has, has said that, you know, we're not just going to sit back and, and wait for criminals or those that wish us harm uh, to impose, you know, all of their negative outcomes on the United States. And so we've got to have the right capabilities that allow us in, in measured times with appropriate uh, safeguards, but the right mission objectives to be able to ensure that we can protect uh, what's important to the United States wherever you know those threats might exist. So 
you know, being a little uh, ambiguous here in some of my, my conversation intentionally, but, you know, we are following the pattern of DOD to build out a team that is interoperable to meet our military obligations, uh, but also to be able to think about how can I plug in additional cyber tactics and capabilities into all the other things the Coast Guard's responsible for. We're on a good glide slope there. Um, we've made headway in getting our members certified, you know, and, and we continue to envision a really capable future. Rear Admiral Michael Ryan, Commander of Coast Guard Cyber Command. Grateful for your time today, sir. Thanks for joining me. No, thank you. I appreciate the dialogue. You can find a link to the Coast Guard Cyber Strategy in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast is back tomorrow with the CIO of the HHS Inspector General's Office, Gerald Karen. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.